Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, and this is timely on the global impact of the vaccines, can America prosper out of pandemic if the rest of the world does not? David Malpass joins us, the World Bank uh, president. Uh, Mr. Malpass, wonderful to have you uh, with us. Your World Bank wants a shared prosperity. I want you to explain to our fancy audience why we need the impoverished world to get beyond the vaccine and the pandemic, to get beyond the pandemic so we can prosper as well. Great question. Hi, everybody, and to to your uh, to your well manicured audience. Um, the the challenge is uh, both the moral the moral issues, meaning we really want people everywhere in the world to do well. But there's a very hard economic uh, reason as well that uh, uh, that that people will create markets of the future, and they will also be the innovators, the 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 uh, uh, the, the really practitioners of growth. That's got to come from from all over the world. So I think there's there's both the responsibility to be engaged in countries worldwide uh, and also the the, uh, the 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 profit motive for everyone in the world. We all do better. It's a positive sum game if everyone can be in uh, the uh, global economy in a positive way and constructive and keeping track of global public goods like climate issues. Right. David, I have said this for years. Full disclosure, Mr. Malpass was in my book of eons ago. David Malpass, I want to make clear you own the word fast. You have always looked at the calculus of the global economy, and now you do it through the prism of the World Bank. Are we recovering fast? Some of the countries are. You know, China didn't even really have a recession in twenty uh, in twenty twenty. The U.S. now looks to be uh, in in a fast recovery, which is welcome. Uh, and but as as we look at the rest of the uh, at many parts of the world, the inequality is the more striking condition. So, and you can see it. You, I heard your, the announcer uh, the, prior talking about commodity prices, and you were talking about. Oil seventy or eighty dollars. That has uh, a differential impact on different countries. Commodity exporters are feeling the rise right now from commodity prices, and so that's good. Uh, but the countries that uh, that use commodities that aren't commodity producers, uh, for example, if your primary export is tourism, uh, you know the tourist destinations in the developing world, they're still feeling it very hard, and I think it's going to be a hard 2021. David, as we believe in this reflation trade, or at least markets do globally, there's been a lot of money that's flown into the developing world, into emerging markets assets. Do you think the chance of a debt crisis in the developing world has basically gotten uh, diminished to near nothing? Or do you think that that's still a really prominent risk? I think it's a prominent risk for a lot of the countries at the bottom, uh, and that has to do with the difficulty of getting new investment. You know, it's not enough to get just new debt. You need to have that debt applied in the countries to projects that are really going to create growth. Uh, we're, we're trying to provide uh, the vaccine support that we can. Uh, that helps the people of the country uh, begin to put it back together again. Uh, food insecurity is a big problem uh, because of 
uh, both the things going on on a global scale in terms of climate changes, uh, but also because the supply chains were disrupted. So all of those mean that the the people at the bottom are still not are not feeling a lift, and I think they really need some new systems that will give them that kind of lift. Yeah, one new system would be at least wiping out some of their debt to give them a leg up as they try to enter a new growth trajectory. There's been some talk, nascent talk, about linking debt reduction to addressing climate change issues. How far along are you in those talks? We're working closely with the IMF on ways that we can uh, envision the connection. You, it's not just climate, it's development in general. The countries need, as, as if, there, if there could be uh, debt reduction, uh, that would that would uh, temporarily disadvantage the creditors, but it would provide resources in the country for them to invest into healthcare, into COVID response, uh, and into climate. Uh, and so the, the, the rest of the world should see that there's a beneficial linkage from uh, for countries where their debt is unsustainable, because maybe past governments took on too much debt, or the projects that they that, that were being financed didn't work out. Some some of the countries have giant white elephants, projects that, that mm -hmm. someone thought five years ago or 10 years ago thought it was a good project and it doesn't work out and right. still the people of the country have to pay the debt year after year after year. So there's got to be some way out of that for the poorest countries. Right. Uh, Mr. Malpass, I have to ask for Craig Gordon and our Washington team, the delicate question always asked when we see a change in administrations. You were appointed by President Trump to a five-year term uh, at the World Bank. I believe through 2024, but now you have a different president. Explain the dynamic of the president of the World Bank with the new Biden administration and how you see that unfolding here in the coming months. I think pretty well. I was proposed by President Trump, but I was selected by the board of the of the World Bank. I work for the World Bank and for the shareholders of the World Bank and the governors, which are countries around the world. So as the Biden administration comes in, uh, they they guide the relationship as the biggest shareholder in the in the World Bank. Uh, but I work for the for the bank, and we're doing things that uh, uh, that the Biden administration is supportive of. I I I think, and I, I I'm. I'm sure that they're very supportive of mm -hmm. global growth, of developing countries doing better, of a of recognizing the importance of climate changes in the in the formation of uh, of economic policies in countries. Uh, all of those are work synergistically and work well. And they also, I think, uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm sure are very interested in the poverty reduction goals of the World Bank. That's one of the cores. Right. And so I'm looking forward to that new relationship. David Malpass, thank you so much. The World Bank president this morning with the good news we've seen over the last number of weeks on better pandemic statistics. Tony Presenzi, PIMCO market strategist, Tony portfolio Sanders. manager and investment committee member. Tony, great to catch up. We have had 48 hours full of central bank speak. Do I sound tired? What was the headline? <laughs> Well, I think you were all just talking about, in fact, Lisa just said, jobless claims are still elevated at 800,000. And uh, a key comment this week from Lyle Brainerd, who, by the way, could well be the next Fed chair next year. 
keep that in mind. Um, she spoke to the idea that even though we've seen improvement in employment, uh, that it, it's not yet it does not yet fit the Fed's new definition of what constitutes maximum employment. Remember, last August 27th, the Fed changed its framework to say that maximum employment must be broad and inclusive. And so that that's a broadening of the definition. That means even if uh, there's a recouping of the 10 million additional jobs that have been lost, that have not been regained, uh, that the Fed will be looking at different yardsticks to decide whether or not it should raise yeah. its policy rate. And that's an important element and wrinkle in the central bank uh, world. And, uh, Tony, congratulations on your new book out. I want to go back to Steigum's 1,000 pages on the short-term uh, market. 1,200. Tony, well, 1,200. Excuse me. Sorry, miss. I didn't get the last 200 pages. The last 200 were Tony, stay with me here. Okay, the bond market, when it moves, moves. Like in the spread market, we move what's called, folks, red zone to green zone, up and down quickly. We're in the middle of that right now, Anthony Crescenzi, where we're moving rapidly on spreads. Is it a normal red zone, green zone abrupt movers or something different this time? Oh, well, it is different than the 2010s. The 2010s is the wrong analog for the current period because of the degree of experimentation that's occurring between the monetary and fiscal authorities. Experimentation meaning the extent to which the, the central bank is enabling the fiscal authority to drop money uh, into the economy in massive quantities. So that's different. Um, but Lisa mentioned the seven-year auction, and that's an important uh, concept in this, and the steepness of the curve. Bond managers love a steep yield curve. Bond investors should love it generally. The, the seven-year note uh, on the surface is yielding 1%. It is 1% yield, but the six-year note is 80 basis points. Let me give you some strange bond math. There's a 20 basis point difference. So what does this so what does a seven year become in a year? A six year. So if the today the yield is one percent, next year then if the six year is eighty basis points, it'll it'll fall on yield. What what happens when yields fall? Prices rise. By how much? Bond math is seven years duration times that, that change in yield, 20 yeah. basis points, that's 1.4 percentage points. So a seven year the total return in a year if yields just stop moving would be 2.4%. And so there's a cushion is what I'm saying. Per unit of duration is 30 basis points per unit of maturity yeah. uh, of cushion to help a bond manager, bond investor today. Now that cushion is important for the equity investor too, the credit investor, the investor in the private markets. If they are thinking about bonds and they're worried about the move, uh, that, that's a bit of insurance. It's, 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 about, it's, it's similar to saying that um, if you buy a seven-year today at 1%, that's not quite attractive, but I mentioned the total return idea. Yeah. It is a, still has diversifying uh, characteristics that enable an investor to take risk in the equity market, in the credit market, in private assets. And so bonds still have a place in a 60-40 split between bonds and stocks context. We think there's still hedge value. So from that context, it's still important. The steepness is important in terms of yeah. what's happened. Tony, I got to say, it does show you, though, where we are in the cycle that we're talking about bond math and such granularity to eke out a 2%, 2.3% return uh, based on where yields are. So it does give you a sense of just where we are in the uh, low interest rate environment. Yeah. I'm wondering on a broader level, though, this rise in interest rates has really come from the rise in real yields. That's basically right. uh, not right. the inflation expectations. And I'm right. not sure what to make of this. I mean, we're not seeing inflation expectations go up in tandem with yields. Right. What's the message? That's important, Lisa. In fact, I wrote myself a note. Top, one of the top things wow. I wrote was real, real yields. <laughs> good handwriting. It's, oh, good. So you picked up 
Yeah, <laughs> you picked up on an important point. Um, the important thing that's happening is that the rise in real interest rates is not affecting the stock market. It's not affecting the credit markets. It's not affecting markets more broadly. Financial conditions are still loose. It's another way of saying that uh, the the pain threshold has not been reached, uh, which is to say that yields then could go higher because rising real yields, higher yields tend to be act as a automatic stabilizer, self-stabilizing uh, uh, mechanism uh, in the sense that as yields rise, it causes equities to fall and then yields stop rising. And so the fact that real yields are having no impact is important. So, so you want to watch and see where it is that the rise in real yields starts to influence other assets, because that's probably the point where the rise in yields becomes self-stabilizing. And it's not there. It might be in the high 1% range, closer to 2%. Uh, for all we know, so long as the equity investor, the credit investor thinks yeah. that 2% is it. Tony, always great to catch up, sir. Appreciate your great, time. Great to see you all. Tony Crescenti, Thanks thank you. Lot. PIMCO Market Strategist, Portfolio Manager and Investment Committee Member. Frances Donald, Manual Life, she's really quite good at adapting and adjusting to the changing linkages of market with economics. Frances, do you change your economics because of the markets or do the markets change because of the economics? Uh, well, they're not really very closely tied together since COVID occurred, but we are at this stage where if we start to see tightening of financial conditions, it will matter to the economic outlook. And this is what central bankers are watching. I watched every minute of Powell speak in the last couple of days. I learned nothing new. And yet overnight, a huge amount of information from a lot of central bankers who are clearly worried about their economy right. because of the financial condition. That includes Australia who tried to expand purchases and saw yields rise pretty aggressively in response. It includes the ECB coming out and saying we're uncomfortable with this. It includes the Bank of Canada with two speeches this week trying to imply that they're more nervous than the yield market suggests. These are all central bankers who worry that the financial okay. conditions are now hurting the economy. Well said. Now, I know you're focused on the real yield. Fridays, folks, 1 p.m., a two-hour special this week with John Farrell. Francis, I want you to focus on the trip point that you're watching? Is it euro? Is it the real 10-year yield in the U.S.? Is it something I don't know? Yeah, I'm watching uh, both real yields and the term premium because as much analysis as we do, that's when you hit the circuit breaker on equities. We have a little bit of ways to go here. You could see real yields rise 30, 40 basis points more before they become very problematic. But I think Powell himself, who is you know appearing as though he's very comfortable, is going to get a lot more nervous as those real yields start to go. Real yields that are this negative with the economic outlook that we have are unsustainable. They have to rise. The hope is that they do it very smoothly and not too aggressively. In the last couple of days, I'm a little bit more nervous about that. Talking about being nervous, and Francis, you do a great reality check. What are you seeing in terms of labor market expansion or lack thereof, and how consistent that is with the optimism we're seeing in markets? The biggest challenge of 2020 was just acknowledging that we could see these really severe job losses and they wouldn't translate to necessarily a huge economic shock because those who had lost their job were so-called lower spenders, right? But now as we head into 2021, we are seeing the employment numbers already lag. Jobless claims should be doing substantially better than they are now. But it's not an equity trade. It might be a rates trade, because even though we see almost 10 million Americans unemployed, their spending is not feeding through to GDP and retail sales as much as those that are still employed now. 
What I think the mistake is, is to ignore that entirely and think the Fed doesn't care. The Fed cares deeply. This market does not believe the Fed when the Fed says it won't be hiking rates until 2024. The employment side of the mandate is what the market has to listen to more or else they're going to get that wrong. Well, Francis, there's one thing about raising rates. There's another thing about expanding the purchases into longer duration assets. And that seems to be off the table or people aren't really talking about it so much. When does that come back on the table or is that off the table for the Fed? I don't think it's off the table. This Fed is going to have to do something to anchor that front end if it starts to rise. Just like all these global central banks are trying to contain the move in yields, it's not going to be enough to just talk down yields from these levels. Powell was extraordinarily dovish in the last few days. It did nothing for him. I suspect we're going to hear a little bit more about yield curve control at the front end. We might hear about extending WAM. These are issues that are going to come back to the fray. I used to think back in December that extending the weighted average maturity of purchases was absolutely on the table. It seems they wanted to save it for a situation like this. That might have been the right move. Francis, you mentioned the labour market. Let's talk about it. The word you hear a little bit more recently is employment and not unemployment. Can you walk me through the emphasis shift there, particularly of the last several years for the Fed and why that matters? Yeah, that's right. When we do our monthly chart book, we used to just have the unemployment rate. We've now expanded it to a range of different measures, things like employment to population. Labor force participation rates in the United States have dropped very precipitously and more than we've seen in other countries. This is problematic for the Federal Reserve, and they've been very clear. They are expanding the way that they look at the employment market, and we as market players will have to do that as well, or else we're not going to see what they see, which is the adjusted employment rate for all of these underlying factors is closer to 10%. It doesn't look as good as we see on our Bloomberg screens when that non-farm payrolls comes out. This is another reason why, even though we could see an earlier taper than perhaps some expect, the Fed is not going to raise rates until it sees material improvement there. And these underlying issues are not going to correct in 2021. It's going to take a couple of years. So help us redefine success, Francis, what we should be focused on. Well, I can only define what the Fed tells us it's watching. That's what I have to do. And essentially what we're looking for is material soaking up of that labor force participation rate, getting it much higher, seeing a, a little bit of a closure of those racial and income disparities. This appears to be a key focus for the Federal Reserve. It doesn't appear that the market believes that this is a key focus. It doesn't appear that the market believes in average inflation targeting. They're pricing in a rate hike that is too early based on what the Fed is telling us. So either the Fed will right. get swept up in higher inflation or they're going to stick to what they're told us, in which case they're not hiking till 2024. Francis, this has been hugely, hugely valuable. And to me, the heart of the matter is whatever your number is you've got in your head for Q2 GDP, there's a mystery to how that sustains to Q3, Q4. What is the probability or weighting that we underestimate better GDP growth Q3, Q4 of this year? So I suspect that we're going to see Q1 and Q2 were much better than most expected. And we're seeing that priced in now. Uh, you know, we expected that the, the soft patch would be in Q1, but actually it looks like it was November, December, January. Q1, Q2 going to be very strong. Where I think the mistake might be is, yes, data will be better in Q3 and Q4, but guess what? The reopening trade is priced. We know we're going to have an aggressive reopening. There's so much more scope for downside surprises in the second half of the year, and this is what really worries me. I tell my team, don't come in and tell me that the vaccines are doing better and virus case counts are down. We know that. I need the next big catalyst. And when I think about the next big catalyst, it's a little bit easier for me to find downsides than upsides 
based on what we already know and what's consensus. Francis, thank you. Can we have Francis on every day? Francis Donald, Money Life Investment Management Chief Economist and Head of Macroeconomic Strategy. Francis, thank you. Without question, our interview of the month, the quarter, even the year of your optimism of this pandemic ending. Udli Edelstein has a wonderful history with his Israel. He is Minister of Health, but that barely defines his symbolism is one of the last refuseniks to leave Russia and his politics of his Israel. We're thrilled that the Minister of Health could join us today. Minister Edelstein, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for telling us about the success of Israel. How did you do it? How did you succeed at this vaccination program? Well, thank you for having me, Ern. I'm really proud to say that the, uh, as we speak, we are crossing the uh, line of 50% of the general Israeli population getting at least the first jab. Uh, I think that the main reason was to start negotiating early, understanding that we are a very small market. The moment companies will actually have the vaccine. They weren't even looking our direction. So we started early. The prime minister, I do have to say, was actively involved in crucial stages in trying to negotiate the best dates possible. And then our medical teams, our HMOs came into action in an incredible way. The results are that uh, in uh, two months we reached, as I've said, uh, about 50% of the general Israeli population. And we have to keep in mind that right now we don't have the permission from Pfizer to vaccinate kids under the age of 16. So I think it's, it is a very, a very impressive result. So Yuli, when is life back to normal in Israel? When are flights opened up to the international audience? Well, that's the question I think I'm asked uh, uh, 200 times a day by my fellow Israelis. So if it's so successful, why don't we go back to normal? And uh, <laughs> yep. we all have to, we all have to understand that uh, uh, we still have a long way to go. Right now, we are cautiously, open, cautiously opening the Israeli economy and, and social life, cultural life, after suffering a very serious attack of the coronavirus just uh, during last month. And the, uh, what enables us to open certain areas that we couldn't even dream about opening, like theaters or fitness centers, is the what we call the Green Pass, which is a, a, a certain document certificate uh, confirming that the, the person has either been vaccinated or unfortunately suffered from the disease and recovered uh, from the disease. So all these people, we are talking at this stage about 3 million people in Israel, uh, can use all these facilities safely. And we are continuing the vaccination. We are hoping yeah. to reach the situation where, as you said, we'll be close to normal life the way we used to know it. Yeah, and one of the hottest topics I know uh, among friends and family is whether people will go back to the same behaviors when the pandemic does lift or whether it will be ingrained in some of the distancing and other types of habits that we've established. Have you had any surprises up until this point as you've vaccinated 50% of your population? Well, the surprise, first of all, there's the psychological aspect that we just started talking about. Definitely there is this kind of a sigh of relief that comes a little bit, I would say, prematurely. People don't understand why, if uh, they've already been vaccinated, they still ha have to wear masks, or they still have to keep social distancing, which in a country like Israel is 
very difficult. You know, we are warm, we want to embrace, we want to get close to each other. And, and uh, so the psychological aspect is, is not uh, easy. Mm -hmm. But the, there, is also, there is also, I think, in terms of the, it's not a surprise, it's a, it's a fact. There is something that we have to keep in mind. The vaccine is very effective. We just had the research that shows the effectiveness of the vaccine. But if we are talking about, let's say, 100 people, all of them vaccinated in a certain event, out of them, five, of, five or six are surely not reacting to the vaccine. So the danger is always there. And that's what we are trying to explain to people. Right. Let's go back to normal, but very cautious. Mr. Edelstein, your, your stature within Israeli politics and your, your history with Israeli politics forces the diplomatic question. There is a transition in Washington from Trump to Biden. What does Israel need or expect from President Biden? Well, I think that uh, we have all the reasons to believe that President Biden will keep the tradition of uh, different American administrations, Republican and Democratic, uh, that we're good friends of Israel. We sometimes had our nuances and different opinions on certain subjects, but uh, I did have the personal pleasure of hosting President Biden in, in my previous capacity as mm -hmm. the Speaker of the Knesset, and he's as Vice President of the United States. He is a good friend. He's knowledgeable about Israel, and I don't have any reasons to, to, to be worried. I think that the... We, we will have to continue working with the American administration on different issues. And uh, well, it's our best interest. And you know what? I'll dare say it's also an American interest. Minister, congratulations on Israel's leadership in this pandemic. Yuli Edelstein, Israel's Minister of Health, and much more of that in domestic uh, Israel politics. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.